This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is God's word. We have rounded a corner and made a turn in Mark's gospel to a number of occasions in which Jesus seizes the moment to teach that being his follower will require exclusive fidelity to him. This in the midst of a haze of competing and even religious-looking possibilities to loyalty. Jesus says, hey, look, this kingdom, this monarchy, means one. One king amongst many competing claims to the throne of your life. And this morning in verses 18 to 22... Chapter 2, we have what I like to call next versers. If you read the Bible, occasionally you'll come across, again, what I like to call next versers. That is a verse or passage in Scripture that is hard to get. It's hard to understand. So you're faced with the possibility of, A, you can either pause, ponder, peruse some study notes, or maybe I'll just speak ahead to see what's in verse 23. And one reason you might be tempted to peek ahead and next verse this bad boy is that Jesus' response to this question asked of him was something like a poem. Something like a poem. He uses three different symbols. It's very highly symbolic. Three different symbols. A marriage celebration, cloth, and wine paraphernalia. Right, And he does so packed into just a few verses. Highly symbolic, and unlike Mary Had a Little Lamb, which is a poem you and I can get a hold of pretty easily, it's hard to figure out the meaning behind these symbols. What's going on here? How many of you, at this point in your life, whenever you see a poem on the horizon, you see it, right? It's, It's a little shorter, it's not quite as long, there's usually more indentations, you may spot a rhyme. How many of you, now, whenever you see a poem on the horizon, you just read past it? Be honest. All right, it might be etched on a monument somewhere, at a grave site. It could be uh, next to something historical or to a piece of art, right? Or, of course, written in some type of Victorian cursive and birthday cards. And you just read past it until you find something that finally makes sense in plain English. That might be a number of you, maybe even most of us, I, I dare say. But Jesus Christ wants those willing to listen to think hard about what it means to follow him. And these verses, the symbolism in these verses exemplifies this 
hard reality of thinking hard. What does it mean to follow you, Jesus? So what we'll do this morning, and by the way, you should have got an outline this morning in your bullets, and you can pretty much ignore that outline. <laughs> what we're going to do this morning is first take time to linger upon the verses themselves, and then get to the sense behind the symbolism. We'll try to make sense of the symbolism in these verses, and then we're going to circle back to see how this might apply to our lives, how we might respond today to Jesus and what he says to us in these words. Christians, Muslims, and Jews, they are all pretty much the same. All just respond to different kinds of guilt in their lives. This comment was said to me a couple years ago after I officiated a wedding up in West Bay. My guess is you've heard something similar or even said something similar yourself. It's all pretty much the same. Religious people. Lying behind the question posed to Jesus in our story is a notion really not too dissimilar. It's the assumption that Jesus' followers, like those of John the Baptist and like the Pharisees, are subscribing to a type of Judaism. And we read this in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and they said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus will essentially make the point that Christianity isn't some add-on to your existing cultural or religious norm, but it's based upon one person who invades all aspects in every corner of a person's life. In fact, our sermon in a nutshell is this. Christians are different because of the plurality of how we worship, the pluralness of how we worship, and the singularity of whom we worship. Now we'll go on to spend the bulk of our time explaining what this means, but Christians are different because of the plurality of how we worship and the singularity of whom we worship. Now, typical Jesus, as he gets into his response here in verses 19-22, he responds to their question on two levels. First, in his graciousness, Jesus condescends to answer their question directly, but then he moves on to a broader point about what this will mean to follow Jesus. So first, he deals with a specific practice of fasting in the here and now. Let's call it year 28 A.D. All right, for the sake of avoiding any confusion. Okay, so he deals with a specific practice of fasting in 28 AD at this moment. But he also points to a broader Christ worship, a broader Christian worship in the future after his resurrection, after his ascension, after he departs from them. So let's talk about both. The two levels when Jesus addresses this question. The first is fasting in 28 AD. Fasting is the occasional discipline of abstaining from food to help one remember his or her need for an invisible God. We live in a highly sensory world, right? And so one's spiritual sense, one's spirit can easily go unexercised. Because what do we do all day long? We see, we hear, we touch, we taste. Those things aren't relevant to an invisible God. 
And so God calls us to sometimes, he called his people to do things to remind them that there's an invisible God out there who they need. And one of them was to abstain from the physical realm, the sensory realm that we experience every day to remind us, I need God as much as I need food. Does that make sense? It helped them connect with this invisible God. And we'll see other kinds of these sorts of, like a day of rest. We'll see that in our next couple stories. And then the discipline of honoring one's family. We'll see that in another story during this kind of part of Mark's gospel. The monarch means one. In these times, there was only one day a year that a Jewish person, a faithful Jew, was required to fast. And that was on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. However, there were all kinds of special days in the month and in the year that fasting was very much encouraged. If you really want to please God, you'll fast during these times. Jesus was asked this question almost certainly during such a time, a traditional and encourage time to fast. All right? Now, the difference with followers of Jesus is first one of time. In Jesus, at this moment in time, God is visible. God is visible at this moment in time in Jesus Christ. So it's a different time altogether. You don't need a special way to connect with God Because God's right in front of you. So Jesus compares himself to a bridegroom who is there. Not this anticipated time of a wedding where you're looking forward to. You get the invitation in the mail. What am I going to wear? What am I going to bring? Who am I going to take with me? Who's going to be my plus one? Right? All these things. He's here. So he compares himself to a bridegroom. He declares this time to be a de facto wedding celebration. A wedding celebration in a Jewish village normally would last about seven days. How, how great is that, by the way? It depends. You know, it depends on who the wedding's for, of course, right? Some of you are like, that, well, if it's maybe someone I don't necessarily get along with, who lives far away, but I need to go to the wedding, let's, let's make it two hours and I'm out, right? But for someone really special who puts on a good party, has, like, knows how to have a good time and celebrate together, seven days, let's do this plethora of wine and food and song and dance, both in the house and overflowing into the street. This is what would have taken place. Even rabbis, the, the ancient form of pastors, were expected to cease and desist from teaching the Torah, which means they were supposed to put down the Bible and get down, preacher, <laughs> right? Start dance. This brings up an important point. Notice there was no fasting, but there was no discipline either. The discipline of regular Bible reading by the disciples at this time. Right? The bridegroom's here. Why would they wake up every morning in the Gospels and and have a quiet time meditating on God's Word when the living Word of God stood before them? Jesus, though, also gets to their deeper level. So the first level is, look, the bridegroom's here. Why would we fast? Why would we go out of our way out of the normally sensory experience to remind ourselves of an invisible God when the bridegroom is right here in front of you. But Jesus also gets to the deeper level behind their question, which is broader Christ, broader Christian worship in the future. And of course, that future is now. Jesus also pointed to a time, even here he says, where the bridegroom would be, quote, taken away. 
Remember, again, this fasting was part of a larger system of time-specific, place-specific, form-specific worship. So in other words, you would please an invisible God by praying at certain times of the day. As a Jewish person, you would recite the Torah, the law of God, the word of God, in certain places, i.e. the temple or the synagogue, and in certain forms, fasting, Torah reading, praying, as we've mentioned, but also Sabbath-keeping, family festivals. These were ways you would worship God, and specifically, Jesus is saying this, as the verses go on here in 20 through 22, or or excuse me, um, 21 through 22, trying to take me and add me and my followers into this system won't work. It's like taking a new patch and sewing it onto an old piece of cloth. It will tear. Or taking new wine. You have new wine? The gases, the new gases that have yet to be released through the final fermenting process. If you put them into an old wineskin, which is already expanded and now hardened, those gases have to get out somehow. They will burst the wineskin. It's already hardened. It needs room to expand. No one, in other words, will be pleased by this kind of worship, least of all me. It will destroy both kinds of worships. It won't work. The old skin will burst. The new wine will spill everywhere. And no one is pleased, least of all Jesus. Now, what's unique about Christianity is pleasing. You get to please one person, one monarch, singular worship, but also it's the fact that this same person, Jesus, is now taken away from us, right? He is not living here in 2013 on this earth in physical form. What's so cool is that we see this displayed in the vocabulary of the New Testament. Now, I'm going to tile this up in a moment, but hang with me. I want to share with you a particular word for worship that's used in the New Testament. It's proskuneo. Proskuneo is this very specific form of worship which implied a physical bowing down, okay, before a visible majesty. Physical bowing down before a visible majesty. So for instance, let me give you an example here. The disciples, after Jesus calms a storm in Matthew 14, they worship him. They use this word proskuneo because they were physically bowing down before a visible majesty. The king of kings, Jesus, is there in the flesh before them. Okay, or another example would be uh, the man born blind in John 9. He is healed, and later he bows down and worships Jesus because Jesus is right there in front of him, a visible majesty. The word is used 26 times in the Gospels. It's a word for worship. 21 times in Revelation, but only once in between. Why do you think that is? In the Gospels, Jesus' is first coming, right? Jesus is here. Revelation describes a time when we're with Jesus forever, those who trust Christ, visibly before him forever. We live in a time where our majesty has gone invisible again, but he dwells by the Holy Spirit with those who trust him. Because the invisible God always dwells with us, worship between the first and second coming of Jesus in any time, any place, virtually any form, opportunity to experience and express glory to the bridegroom. So we live in a time, 
but more simply, where we take the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and we bring Him everywhere. All right, so it goes beyond a particular time, a particular place, a particular form, because we bring God, the Holy Spirit, everywhere with us. And so worship becomes a multiple experience. So in the New Testament letters, the following are expressed as acts of worship. When we're fasting, we're Torah reading, we're celebrating certain festivals of certain times, you don't see them. Instead, you see praise and thanksgiving. Hebrews 13, 15. You see good works in everyday life. Hebrews 13, 16. You see new followers of Jesus Christ. Those who trust their life to Jesus are called offerings, worship unto God. Romans 15, 16. You see financial resources shared between churches as each has need, as worship. 1 Corinthians 9, 12-13. You see how one uses his or her body every day of their life. How you use your body is an act of worship. Romans 12.1 See here, do you see the point? Worship is now broadened. More places, more times, more forms, more ways. It's amazing. Before contemporary language translations of the Bible came out, uh, translations like the New Living Translation, or uh, let's face it, loose paraphrases, which are not the Bible, but more like commentaries of the Bible, like the message before these came out, there was uh, one alternative, which was the J.B. Phillips translation, written in the 1950s. Written as the one response to the only viable English alternative available at the time, which was the King James Version. Remember the King Jimmy Version? I don't know if some of you guys still use that. It had the these, the thous, the thuses, the forsooths, right? And these sorts of things, and you don't know what's going on. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Who's verily? I don't know. You had this, you had this uh, J.B. Phillips translation. And J.B. Phillips said in his preface in the New Testament letters, just a little moment in his preface, he says something just brilliant. He says, the great difference between present-day Christianity and that of which we read in these letters in the New Testament, remember, between the first and second coming of Christ, is that to us, that our Christianity is primarily a performance. To them, it was a real experience. We are apt to reduce the Christian religion to a code, or at best, a rule of heart and life. To these men, it is quite plainly the invasion of their lives by a new quality altogether. The invasion of their lives by a new quality altogether. They do not hesitate to describe this as Christ living in them. I love that. And yet it should make us afraid too, right? Christ living in us. At one moment, wonderful. At one moment, terrible. Everywhere we go, we carry Christ with us. So to summarize all this very simply, these verses, the new wine, the unshrunk patch is the invasion of Christ in us. And the new garment and the fresh wineskin is the new kind of worship. Because of the new invasion of Christ, God in us, you have to worship differently. Which is the plurality of how we worship. We worship in all kinds of ways and forms and times and places. The singular whom of our worship is the bridegroom himself to whom we are wed always. Now, 
how might we respond to Jesus' teaching here about this new kind of worship? A couple ways I want to suggest. First one is to repent, to turn from, to say sorry to God for, and turn to him. Repent of time, place, and form-specific worship that reduces worship to a code, to a formula. It's easy to assume at this point that we all prefer, prefer broader forms of worship, sort of the whatever, whenever, wherever kind of worship. We're like, yeah, I like that. In my car, late at night, early in the morning, when I'm having lunch, these things are all good. But I'd argue that we give into and choose time-specific, place-specific, form-specific worship far more often than we'd like to think. I'll explain what I mean. But let me backtrack for a minute and just define worship. Very brief. There are lots of definitions you can give for worship. Here's one. Giving life back to that which you get life from. Giving life back to that which you get life from. To give back your time, to give back your talents, to give back your thoughts, your devotion, your words, your emotions, that which you feel like you get life from or do in fact get life from. Whatever that might be, or whoever that might be. When I first became a Christian, I learned one of the best ways to get to know God was to escape for time alone with Him. It was hard at first, but then I began to love just spending time with him. At first, it was 10 minutes, then 15, then 20, then 30, then 40, then 50. And so I got to the point where I was spending time with God over an hour. I mean, it was just, it was great. And I had this discipline in my life. I don't, you know, I had lots of faults in my life. This does not make me out to be anything. But I just enjoyed spending time with him. And it was one way I received life as I came into contact with the author of life. I loved it. It was, it was so precious to me. And then I tried to live out my life the rest of the day, giving life back to him in praise and worship. The problem was, it became, became the way of worshiping. It became the way. It became this very form-specific. So when we had Mason, our oldest child, it created certain demands on time. All right, you could just, and everything that goes along with that. And I faced the prospect of shortening time alone with God. And I fought against it. You can ask Katie. Um, Katie's not feeling well this morning. She's not here. But if she was here, she would nod her head at this point. Yes. You'd, I guarded my time. I fought against it because worship became time and form specific. And I needed to repent of that. I needed to repent of that. I needed to turn from that. Instead, it turned into, I had to learn that you know, taking opportunities to sing to Mason as I held him, that could become worship. And thank you, God, for this child. And just singing praise songs to him. And I have a terrible voice. Believe me, this was only beautiful to God. Poor Mason, it somehow soothed him because he was my dad. He's like, yeah, you're my dad, but otherwise, you know, don't, don't rent out Carnegie Hall or anything, all right? Um, or, or just taking opportunities as he got older to read to him from a children's Bible. And that children's Bible became Part of my quiet time, I gave up the ESV translation or the NIV translation for, you know, whatever this child's translation was. And I remember to grow from that, learn from that. Oh God, what are you trying to teach me? I remember that story. And you learn and you grow. But it's very easy to think, oh, I got it now. This is how I'm going to worship God. This is the way. 
whether it's singing or whether it's praying or whether it's doing this habit or this person that I'm going to spend time with or this community group, this is the way I'm going to do it. And you get locked in. What ends up happening is that form of worship becomes an idol. You can no longer get life from it. Because you start to try to get life from the form other than from the God who's in the form. God is behind it. Some time ago, uh, we were having a, uh, our church was having a night of praise and worship, which is awesome. But someone in the church at that time approached Katie about her attendance. And we have kids, and it was a night thing. She said, you know, I'm going to try, but it's been a hard week, and I don't want to have a babysitter. And the person's response to Katie was, oh, you have to. You have to. And they were deadly serious. You have to do this. They said, you know, we've been praying about this for like six months. This is the way. This is, you've got to attend. What were they communicating? And what do we often communicate when we say things like that? Time, place, form, specific. Such that the time, the place, the form becomes a kind of idol. That we think if we don't do this, we won't get the life that we need to live. In Colossians 2, Paul rails against this. In Colossians 2, 16 and 17, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and with regard to a festival or a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. In other words, let no one pass judgment on you when it comes to a specific way of worshiping, uh, whether it's a, a place, a time. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus. It's the Christ behind those disciplines we are to worship. When you start saying you have to do it in this way at this time, in this place, oh man, so we get into trouble these things, even these religious things, become an idol. All specific times of focusing can become helpful, like the prayer vigil. You may be here this morning and say, oh man, I forgot the prayer vigil. I'm a bad Christian. Look, there are plenty of times to pray this morning. Pray today. Pray on your way home. Sometimes those are the best times when you do something great. You go to a night of worship and on the way home is the best time. Or having a conversation with someone afterwards is the best time. You don't know when God's going to break in to your life and help you worship Okay, but time, place, form-specific worship doesn't happen in just the religious realm, but also in our daily secular routine of life. Think about all these times you were told you must buy or you must possess the specific product if you're really to have life to the fullest. I mean, watching, reading a magazine, watching television, being on the internet, that you're like bombarded with this message. You, you've got to have this to have life to the fullest, right? This thing, this newer version, we literally buy into it, right? I can say literally in this moment. I'm not falsely using that term, literally. You literally buy into it. And it's because this code, this formula, if I get this specifically, I will have a fuller life. We also buy into the notion that a party, an event, a particular gathering of persons will give us life by either looking forward to them, fixing our thoughts on those things, clearing our schedule for them, avoiding other good opportunities, Facebooking and posting pictures about them afterwards. What is that? Who is that? And when is that for you? When you buy into these things you think will give you life, it is worship, friends. Nothing short of worship. It's a religious word on a secular reality, a daily reality of our life. But when the clamor dies down, 
try as we might, we can never keep getting life from those things. The well runs dry, and we're left with a sick heart. We can't keep getting life from those things. So, one way we can respond to Jesus' teaching, repent from time, from place, to form specific kinds of worship. Second way we can respond is this way. Just a singular marriage to the bridegroom should change my multiple ways of worshiping. Let me say that again. The singular marriage to the bridegroom should change my multiple ways of worshiping. All things are done with him, for him, and because of Jesus. Marriage determines that, right? I love that he uses the marriage analogy here because when you get married, you do most things then with your spouse. The things you did sometimes independently before, now you do with them. You do more things for them. You do more things because of them. I didn't used to go shopping at 6.30 p.m. on my way home, but I got a phone call, and I got I to go get the milk. <laughs> Whatever it might be, all things now are with Jesus, for Jesus, and because of Jesus. The religious, so-called religious disciplines of life. Fasting is no longer about not eating food to identify with suffering, but it's about feasting on the bread of life. Him who is the bread of life. Reading the Bible is more than putting sentences together or reading some notes on why the heck Paul seems to really dislike circumcision. I don't know why that is. But it's reliance on the Holy Spirit to illuminate the words that King Jesus the king of the universe wishes to speak to you. The king of the universe wishes to speak to this. You rely on the Holy Spirit to highlight those words. Have them make sense to you. Time set aside for private prayer isn't about talking to an empty chair or silent chatter in your head or even uh, writing down words that are like dear diary. But communicating with someone who wishes to hear your prayers as the means to break into his history. Amazing. Telling others about Jesus is more than an official invitation to a well-meaning group like the Rotary Club, but it's divine appointment requiring total dependence on the Holy Spirit to speak about Jesus in such a way that He becomes so attractive that hearts and lives are moved and they're brought into the church of the living God. It's amazing. Singing with the saints. It's no longer about finding you know, talented drummers like Tony up here, or great worship set arrangers like my friend Lisa, but an opportunity to draw near and further experience the love of Christ, which the Apostle Paul describes as inexhaustibly high and deep and wide and long. Yes, I want that. But we also worship Jesus in the routine of life. Now first, I want to note that I've, I've said earlier, virtually any form, we can worship Jesus in virtually any form, because there are some things you can't do for Jesus, with Jesus, because of Jesus, because they are sin. They're either sin because God calls them sin, or they've, become, they've taken a good thing, we've made it into an ultimate thing, put it in the place of God, and it's become an idol. So a good rule of thumb is the verse Colossians 3.17. Great verse to memorize. Where Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, that's pretty all-encompassing, right? Sounds like worship. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So a good rule of thumb is, is this worship is 
Can I do it in the name of Jesus? Yes, God, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. There's some things you can't say, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. All right? And there's also some things when you do them long enough, good things, you can no longer thank Christ through them. You can't say, man, thank you, God, for this third hour, fourth hour of sports I'm watching. Right, man, it's so great. Thank you. that All day I've been indulging in this. It's hard to say that with a clear conscience. Yeah. At least I went third or fourth hour of television, not third or fourth, fifth, sixth beer. I'll just leave that alone. Um, but that's another one. So for instance, you can do your job, but you can no longer do it the same. You do it not primarily for the approval of a boss, but to please God. You stay silent in your workplace where there's coarse joking. Though it's alluring, it seems fun to coarsely joke with your coworkers. You walk out where gossip is indulged so you can set an example for Jesus Christ. You, you shop. You simply can't shop the same. You have to be on guard against the lies that you must have something to have abundant life. You start considering the needs of others when you shop. For instance, we have an opportunity back there when you grocery shop. You can get food for hungry after-school children. Maybe you exercise the gift of giving as you shop. You can't relax the same. You make the best use of the time and said, redeem your relaxation through redemptive movies and shows. Use it as opportunities for community and thanksgiving. You can't make decisions the same. Part of your regular life. You can't make decisions in isolation, but in community. Community groups. Ask those around you, especially your pastors, your elders, your community group leaders for good counsel those who are entrusted with keeping a watch over your souls, the Bible says. It's a big responsibility. We're going to take it seriously. Ask us. See, people make so many decisions. They just made decisions to move or to do something different. Make life decisions in isolation. You can't do that as a Christian. One more. Dealing with suffering. Dealing with suffering. Because that's a part of our everyday life. You can't simply watch on CNN and YouTube and just donate a few dollars. You've got to get involved and suffer with others as Christ did and does for you. There are so many ways to do this, not only abroad, but locally. Let me just close by saying this about suffering. One of my favorite 20th century authors is a German man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I just finished his like 600-page biography. It, it, it took way too long, but it was really good. And He lived during a time uh, of Nazi Germany, Ultimately, he chose to suffer with the Jewish people, worship God by suffering with them, by involving himself in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was a pastor, a theologian. He gets involved in this plot. It was a difficult decision, but he saw this as the best way to help relieve the suffering because this, this Hitler guy was an antichrist. So ultimately, he was caught. The plot failed. He was caught and he was killed for it. But his decision to risk his life and suffer death wasn't the only act of worship. I want you to listen how he worships God during his imprisonment in his suffering and the suffering of those around him who are also imprisoned. A few ways. In one of the worst prisons, he and other more learned prisoners were paired up in these cells, individual cells. But at this point in Nazi Germany, you learned uh, you couldn't trust anyone. There were spies everywhere. And so every, every pair of person who was paired up in these cells very much unkind to one another, distrustful, mean-spirited, because they didn't know who was a spy. One of the prisoners wrote that it was only Bonhoeffer and his cellmate that got along because he wrote that he seemed to risk true Christian charity and trust. 
because it was the right way to worship God. In the midst of suffering, he trusted God. He worshiped God. During one last brief and, and, and normal moment of his life, when hundreds of prisoners were sent by grueling bus trips in which the smoke filled the cab, they couldn't move a literal inch because luggage just packed into them. They finally get to this village school in the countryside, and it's a virtual party because at this point the prisoners are everywhere. Hundreds of prisoners, they take over the joint. Bonhoeffer, instead of relaying with people and kind of joining in this, this virtual party, he spent most of his time there with a widow who had lost her husband. And Dietrich had spent the last days of her husband's life with him. So he carefully recounted to her in detail his final moments that he spent with him. As others were distracted by socializing, he focused on loving this woman in the midst of suffering. One more. During his final bus trip, and this is just so normal. Everyone was starving during this, this, this bus trip, and Bonhoeffer saved up a scanty ration of tobacco. Don't get caught up on the tobacco thing. A scanty ration of tobacco over a period of time for a period of months, and he insisted on contributing it to the whole bus for the common good so each person's hunger would be further abated so they could deal with this starvingness. It was just a, such a normal thing to give out. Ah, oh, but what an act of worship. He worshiped God in the midst of suffering. It was very normal, but also large in the way that he loved others. Normally, but largely loved others said the only man who was present to write of the last weeks of his life, a man named Payne Best, I've said Bonhoeffer was a good and saintly man. In fact, my feeling was far stronger than these words imply. He was, without exception, the finest and most lovable man I have ever met. Why? Because Jesus Christ invaded his life. And in the midst of a normal, in many ways, suffering, but also hard, Bonhoeffer embraced worshiping God with all of his life with everyone around him, and at every moment. Let us do likewise as Jesus has invaded our lives. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would help us respond to these words, that we can no longer live the way that we used to. And Jesus is not, trusting Jesus is not a tack on to the way we're living now. He's not sort of an addition, as if another wing to the home of our life. He is nothing short of the invasion of our lives. And because of that, Lord, we got to worship differently. New wineskins, new cloth. We can't stay the same. The bridegroom has come. We are wed to him. Help us, help us, help us. Repent from ways that we've thought, this will give me life. This group of people, this action, this product, this religious discipline, this in and of itself, this will be the thing that gives me life, but it won't. Only the Jesus behind those things. And help us repent, too, of trusting in all these ways and flashy ways the world puts before us where we can get life. Instead, help us be changed and worship you with all of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.